Welcome to episode 22 of Rounds Rant, and I'm joined by Alan Stein Jr. Alan teaches organizations how to utilize the same strategies in business that elite athletes use to perform at a world-class level. Alan also has a book entitled Raise Your Game, about to be released in a few days' time, and that also looks at topics such as leadership, performance, and success within businesses and elite athletes. So with the intro done and dusted, how are you, Alan? I am fantastic, Richie. It's great to connect with you. Well, thanks a million for coming on the show. So the the first thing I want to talk about is before we get into the book and your main body of work and as in what you currently do, I'd like to know the story behind what we see now. So in other words, what made you initially get into basketball coaching in the first place? You know, basketball was my first identifiable passion. You know, I, I vividly remember falling in love with the game uh, at like five or six years old. And it's been a main pillar of my life ever since. And, you know, I'm 43 years old. So it's it's been a big part of my life for over three decades. And uh, I played lots of different sports and I did lots of different activities as a kid. You know, everything from skateboarding and BMX biking to martial arts uh, to your traditional sports of, of soccer and, and so forth. But I just always kept coming back to basketball. And uh, I was a, a pretty decent high school player, uh, was able to play at the college level at a small school down in North Carolina. Um, and then it was clear that I was not going to be able to play post-college, uh, but I knew that I wanted to stay heavily involved in the game. And, you know, as a player in high school and college, uh, I started to develop a, a very strong affinity for the performance side, uh, for the strength and conditioning side. I was always looking for ways uh, to get faster and to jump higher. Uh, so I decided to become a basketball performance coach when I graduated, which would marry my old love of basketball with my new love of performance training and strength and conditioning. And I did that for almost 20 years uh, and then a couple of years ago, I, I decided to uh, make another pivot in my life and take all of the lessons that I had learned from the best players and coaches in the world and, and kind of turn my, my sights on the corporate world. And I now teach businesses how to use those same mindsets and rituals and routines and disciplines uh, that athletes use. But uh, even in the corporate world, uh, I'm still very close to the game of basketball and I'm tied directly to it because, you know, that's the the lens at which I share everything I do. And it's interesting you say that as in, it was very much through your experiences. And as you said, 20 plus years as a trainer and a coach within basketball, it gave you such important life lessons and insights into the functionality or how, how elite teams or elite athletes or even promising athletes perform and how ultimately some of the characteristics there obviously do tie into business. But before we get into the similar characteristics you might find with athletes and businesses, etc., you worked with many uh, basketball players who eventually went on to play in the NBA, including the likes of Kevin Durant, Steph Curry. And wondering at that early stage, was it clear, is there anything clear in your mind that you can see within these players that makes you think these are definitely going to go, go on and become professionals in the NBA? Well, you know, I'm very thankful that, that I've been able to observe the game and elite players from two very distinct perspectives, uh, which one you just brought up was, you know, I was able to meet a lot of these kids when they were 14, 15 years old, and I got to see them before 
they became the elite superstars that they are today. Uh, I worked at two different high schools in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, and I think we have over a dozen guys in the NBA uh, from those two schools alone. So uh, I got to see that vantage point. Uh, But then that also led to work with Nike, with Jordan Brand, with USA Basketball, uh, where I got to observe you know, firsthand and work events for guys like LeBron James, uh, Chris Paul, uh, you mentioned Stephen Curry, uh, Anthony Davis, Kyrie Irving, Steve Nash, Kobe Bryant. I mean, the best of the best. And I got to see those guys after they had already been established players. So I've been able to see kind of the before and the after picture of what it takes to be an elite player. Uh, but to answer your question, um, certainly in a game like basketball and, and and to make it to the NBA, uh, there has to be a certain amount of just raw physical talent. I mean, they have to have the physical tools, uh, which in basketball, you know, usually equates to a certain amount of height and strength and speed and hand-eye coordination and quickness. You know, they, they need those tools. But once they have those tools, since that's kind of the ante to sit at the table, uh, then yes, there are absolutely some other qualities that can that can give you some insight to this that this player has the potential to play at a high level, but it's never guaranteed because for every guy that I saw, like a Kevin Durant who at 15, you know, showed all the makings of a future superstar. uh, I can name just as many players and I wouldn't, but I could name just as many players uh, that could have been great, but didn't for a variety of reasons. And, you know, the things that jump out the most, uh, one, they have an incredible passion for the game. They absolutely love to play. They play basketball because they love the game, not because someone else makes them play or not because someone thinks they should play. They play because they love it. Uh, next is they're very coachable, which is is in line with, with having humility. They, they know that they don't have all the answers and they know that coaches can help them get better at their craft. So they welcome coaching. Uh, another is they have a relentless work ethic. Like they, they enjoy the process of working hard uh, and they like putting in the reps during the unseen hours. Uh, and then the last one is, um, they really respect and understand the process. Uh, They, they, they knew at an early age that you don't get to become a great basketball player overnight, that it takes years and years of, of putting in work again during the unseen hours to really hone your craft and become a good player. And when I see someone that has the physical talent and I know that they have you know, the character and integrity to support success, and then they show some of those other qualities, then yeah, the sky's the limit for them. It is important that you say a lot of the unseen work and it's, it's at professional level, whatever sport you're playing, the supporters, the fans, they only get to see pretty much the finished product or the kind of, the sums of all the hard work they've done in training are on their own time. And just to give it a bit of context, and I know you've, you've told the story quite a lot, but just a lot of the Irish listeners wouldn't be aware of it. There was a certain story that grabbed me um, with regards to Kobe Bryant and when you were working at one of the Nike camps. And I'm just, I'd just like to let you tell that story just for all the listeners who aren't aware of us with regards to what he does beyond the camera and away from the limelight with regards to his training. Absolutely. Hey, anything I can do for my Irish listeners, I'd love to do it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, back in 2007, I mean, I can't believe it's been over a decade now, but uh, back in 2007, uh, Nike flew me out to Los Angeles to work the first ever Kobe Bryant Skills Academy. And uh, it's important, you know, for your listeners, I don't know how closely they follow the game of basketball, but they need to know that in 2007, Kobe was the best player in the game. Uh, Michael Jordan, who everybody's yeah. heard of, and he had already retired a couple times at that point. Uh, and LeBron James, you know, in all of his greatness, uh, was still climbing that mountain. I mean, Kobe was, he was that dude. And, you know, as I already told you guys, I've spent my entire life in a basketball bubble. So I had always heard this urban legend of how insanely intense Kobe's individual workouts were. Well, now that I was on camp staff, I figured this was my chance and this was my shot. So at my earliest opportunity, I, I went right up to Kobe and asked if I could watch one of his workouts. And he was incredibly gracious and, and smiled and said, sure, man, I'm going tomorrow at four. And I got a little bit confused because uh, kind of the nerd that I am, I had just got done looking through the camp schedule and it said that the first workout with the kids was the next day at 3.30. Uh, and, and Kobe noticed that confused look on my face and quickly clarified that with a wink and another smile and said, yeah, that's 4 a.m. Well, as your yeah. listeners can appreciate, uh, there's not a legitimate excuse in the world on why you can't be somewhere at four in the morning, especially not an excuse that a guy like Kobe Bryant's going to accept. So I pretty exactly, much committed yeah. myself to, to being there. And, you know, I, I figured if I was going to be there anyway, I might as well try and impress Kobe. You know, I might as well try and leave my mark and show him how serious of a trainer I was. So I came up with a plan to beat him to the gym. So I set my alarm for 3 a.m. The alarm goes off. I jump up. I quickly get dressed. I hop in a taxi and I head to the gym and I step out of the taxi. It's probably 3.30 in the morning. So of course it's pitch black outside. And yet from the parking lot, I can see that the gym light is already on and I can even faintly hear a ball bouncing and sneakers squeaking. I walk in the side door of the gym and Kobe's already in a full sweat. He was going through an intense warm-up before his scheduled workout started with his trainer at four. Now, out of professional courtesy, and I, I was so thankful just to be there, uh, I didn't say anything to him and I didn't say anything to his trainer. Uh, I didn't want to be intrusive. I just sat down to watch and I was actually shocked. I was shocked because for the first 45 minutes, I watched the best player in the world do the most basic footwork and offensive moves. Uh, Kobe was doing stuff that I had routinely done with middle school age players. Now, of course, this is Kobe Bryant, so don't get it twisted. He was doing everything at an unparalleled level of effort and with unparalleled focus. Uh, and he had surgical precision with everything that he did. But the actual stuff he was doing was very basic. Now, the whole workout lasted a few hours. And again, when it was over, I didn't say anything to him. I didn't say anything to his trainer. I just quietly left. But man, my curiosity just kept eating away at me. So later that day at camp, I went up to him and I asked I said, Kobe, I don't understand. You're, you're the best player in the world. Why are you doing such basic drills? And again, he was so gracious and, and, and flashed that million dollar smile and said, well, why do you think I'm the best player in the world? Because I never get bored with the basics. And that, that was a really pivotal moment in my life. I mean, that was a life changer for me because it, it made me realize that just because something is basic, it doesn't mean that it's easy. A lot of people think those are synonyms and interchangeable, but they're not. Just because something's basic, it doesn't mean that it's easy. If it was easy, everyone else would be doing it. 
But as you know, you know, it doesn't matter if, if you live in Ireland or you live here in the, the United States, we live in a world that is increasingly pushing us to skip steps, that's increasingly pushing us to circumvent the process, that's pushing us to chase what's new and what's hot and what's flashy and what's sexy and to just ignore what's basic. Uh, but that's a big mistake because the basics work and they always have and they always will. And, and the very first step to improving performance in any area of our life, whether it's basketball or business, is acknowledging that the basics work, but also having the humility to admit that sticking to them consistently will not be easy. Yeah, no, that it is. It is a fascinating thing to hear. And as you, as you rightfully said, Kobe, in those mid to late two thousands, was the best. He's what LeBron James more or less is. So now, and like I even remember one year at the Ryder Cup when Ireland hosted this, I remember seeing Tiger Woods on the practice green, and he more or less was doing the exact same thing. He took over, I'd say, fifty or sixty putts about four feet from the hole. And a lot of people were just in awe of him just doing the most basic thing probably in golf, which is a four foot putt, but he did it over and over and over again. And one of his signatures throughout was his success was his ability to just hold those easy putts that every other pro would miss maybe one time out of 50, but Tiger would never do it. So as you rightfully said, you just can't, and as Kobe put it, you can't get bored of the basics if you want to be the best. And I think that's a testament to it. Yeah. Well, you know what I find interesting here, uh, here in the States, uh, uh, American football, um, this happens all of the time. In fact, I just saw a press conference the other day, uh, inevitably in the NFL, uh, if a team loses, say two or three games in a row and they do their post game press conference. I literally heard this the other day. Uh, the coach comes on and says something to the effect of, well, when we get back to practice on Monday, we're going to get back to the basics, you know, which in football is, you know, mm. blocking and tackling and, and so forth. But he said, we're going to get back to the basics. And, you know, I'm certainly not pretending I, I know more than an NFL coach. Those guys are absolute geniuses, but I do find that a little bit comical that someone's answer to the problem is to get back to the basics, which makes me think, well, you should never leave them in the first place. If your answer is to do yeah. the basics, then don't leave them. Make that a staple of what you do every single day. And, and the best players and the best coaches and the best teams that I've been around, they do those things every day. You know, I was the, the performance coach at DeMatha Catholic High School in Washington, D.C., um, who's had, you know, uh, the 2017 number one pick in the NBA draft, Markel Fultz, is a DeMatha grad. Uh, Victor Oladipo, who was the sixth man of the year and an NBA all-star, uh, was, was a DeMatha grad. And uh, every single practice at DeMatha has some form of the fundamentals or some form of the basics. And the neat part is... If you're willing to do them consistently, then you don't have to do them for hours on end. You know, figure out what the basics are of whatever it is you're trying to improve, uh, whether it's writing or speaking or basketball or a form of business, and then do those basics, you know, with purpose and intention every day. And, you know, for a basketball player, if they spend 15 to 20 minutes working on their shooting mechanics and working on their footwork, but as long as they do it every day, those little 15, 20 minute increments, they really add up. So it's not like you have to do the boring and the mundane, you know, every day for four hours, you just have to do them a little bit to stay sharp. And, you know, to a guy like you said, and that was, that was so brilliant and insightful, you know, I mean, to, to Tiger Woods making a four foot putt has got to be pretty mundane and pretty boring, but he's learned how to appreciate 
that doing that every day or every time he hits the course is going to lay the foundation for them to be him to be able to hit you know more extraordinary putts later on. Yeah, no, that's it's a superb point, especially as you as you rightfully said every single week when you look at a recap on NFL, as you said, coaches do tend to always go back to oh yeah, we need to work on the basics when obviously they try to maybe do too much too soon and ultimately that's affected their performance. So it is interesting that you do bring up that kind of habit, so to say, that you have to keep with the basics. So that kind of leads me on to my next point. And you you, you briefly brought it up at the start. And what made you think that the behaviors and standards and even the habits that you've seen or you know exist within a professional sports team or an athlete would directly cross over into the business world in which you could help both sides and learn from both sides? Well, I actually started to experience it myself because even as a basketball performance coach, um, I've been an entrepreneur and a, and a small business owner since I graduated high school because uh, I never worked for a professional team. Um, you know, everything I, I basically owned my own training company for 20 years uh, and I would train athletes. And then when I would do work with Nike and Jordan brand, uh, I was basically just a, a subcontractor of them. So I've, I've always had to, you know, uh, kind of survive on my own as an entrepreneur. And I was finding that all of these principles that I was learning on the court were applying to my life outside of that. You know, all of the things that we've just talked about, I mean, you know, uh, building and growing a successful business uh, relies on the basics. I mean, when you look at the most basic components, you have to make sure that you're adding value and that you're solving a problem that needs to be solved and that that you have outstanding service and you have a tremendous relationship with your clients and customers and you know it, all of those things are incredibly basic but they were the backbone of of me building my own business and you know then as i as i continued to grow and to expand uh, and grow my network uh, i started to befriend and and have mentors that weren't in the sports world they were in the business world I've always believed in learning from people outside of my direct industry. So when I was in basketball, yes, I absolutely studied basketball players and basketball coaches, but I was also studying people uh, in the military and studying people in business and studying people in, in the arts, you know, actors and, and musicians and studying anything I could on performance and started to realize that, man, this stuff is all the same. That, that whether you're Jeff Bezos and you own Amazon or you're Beyonce and you're on stage or you know you're you're the guy that wrote Hamilton or you're Kobe if you want to perform at a high level you have to do these these fundamental building blocks and and as I, I started to in, you know uh, get entrenched in that even further then I realized man this is absolutely applicable uh, and then another turning point um, I mentioned I'm 43 I have three children I have eight-year-old twin sons and I have a six-year-old daughter. And when I became a father, um, it also became incredibly clear that the traits needed to be a connected and influential and loving father were also very similar to the stuff that needs to be a great basketball player to be in business. And you know, many of the things now that I teach and model for my children are the same stuff that I talk to CEOs about and are the same stuff that I used to talk to uh, elite players about. So, like as you as you said, the main the main concepts you were dealing with and the basics are stuff like leadership and stuff. And it, it's pointed out that in your upcoming book, Raise Your Game, you the aim is obviously there's huge amounts of information. I'd imagine so many useful things to take out of it. But the three key issues 
that you think face leaders or organizations are ineffective leadership, team dysfunction, and low performance, and other things you tend to focus on. So what are some of the most common mistakes you see in organizations or athletes which contribute towards these problems arising? It all, it starts and it ends with leadership. I mean, if, if any team or any business or organization does not have strong leadership, uh, it's not a matter of if they're going to fail. It's just, when are they going to fail? So leadership is crucial. Uh, and I've noticed that in good organizations, they have really solid leadership at the top. You know, uh, if we're talking about a business, you know, the executive team or the founder uh, or the CEO, uh, that's a given that they're strong leaders. But for the really exceptional, you know, uh, organizations, uh, they have tremendous leadership throughout uh, because they promote and they want and they encourage everyone in the organization to view themselves as a leader and, and to hold themselves to the same accountability as if they were uh, the leader. And they really promote that. They want autonomy. They want people that that make good decisions. They want people that are great teammates. So uh, the old school management style of kind of top down where, you know, I'm the CEO, I'm the top of the org chart, I'm in charge, you work for me, you do what I say, or you're not here. You know, that may have worked 30 years ago. That doesn't work today. You know, today, the the best org charts you know, they flow just as naturally horizontally as they do vertically, that everybody in the organization holds themselves uh, and holds their teammates accountable, that that now elite level CEOs, you know, they don't think that their people work for them. They believe that they work for their people. And that's that's an important mind shift. So it all comes back to leadership and, and leadership is, you know, about uh, having a vision and being able to you know, have clarity in communicating that vision. Uh, it's about making sure everyone on the team knows their role and embraces their role and stars in their role. Everybody knows, you know, what piece of the puzzle they are to help the team get to that that vision. Uh, they hold each other accountable, but they do so through love and because they care. You know, when you hold somebody accountable, that's something that you do for them. That's not something you do to them. That, that when you hold someone accountable to be their very best and to live up to high standards, that's a way of showing them that you care about them. And, and that is absolutely a component that starts with leadership and then bleeds to the rest of the team. So uh, the strongest leaders are incredibly confident, but they also have the humility and the compassion and the self-awareness to realize that their organization is bigger than the, just them. And that it's important that they get everybody involved. Everyone feels like they have a voice and a say, and everyone is committed to playing their role and doing their part. And that's how uh, an organization will thrive. No, that's it's it is true with regards to making sure that it's not top heavy with regards to a company. And it it actually reminds me literally two days ago with one of the books I'm reading. It's it's all about performance and culture. And there was basically these two guys did a study and all these new startups in Silicon Valley years ago. And they spent several years studying this and they noticed that with all these different companies, there were different types of cultures within them. So some companies wanted to get the smartest type of people, the best of the best, while others wanted to get the most hungry, the most kind of committed uh, bunch of workers and the people that were less selfless than say the others are less even selfish maybe. And out of all the Different cultures they found, whether it was, as you said, top heavy, as in the boss was the boss, everything was said by him, 
or at the very so-called bottom, which he called a commitment culture, which was that everyone was committed to a big picture. Everyone had a role to play. Everyone knew their role and people wanted to do well because they actually respected the company and wanted the company to do well. Out of all the companies and all the cultures, the commitment culture where everyone was pulling together, not one of those companies folded within seven years. While every other different type of culture, and you could there was four or five different other ones, all of them, I'm not saying every single one of them, but at least one of them failed. Mm. So it was quite interesting to know that the the kind of unified and the unity within a commitment culture where these guys are maybe not as intelligent, not as they don't have a glamorous CV like some other people. That was actually what made a business or an organization function better than, say, the other ones that on paper might actually have the potential to work better. So I found that quite interesting. You know, what what you just said is, I mean, it's so accurate because culture is the number one determining factor in a business's longevity and and sustainable results. And uh, every business and every team has a culture. Every organization has a culture. It's just a matter of whether it's a positive one that was developed through intention and purpose, or it's a negative one because uh, either you have poor leadership or you just let the chips fall where they may. But but culture is vital, and and I've always believed because culture is kind of a buzzword that's that's thrown around a lot. I believe first and foremost that a company uh, or an organization they need to know their identity. They need to know who they are, what they stand for, what problems they solve, who their target market is, why they're going to make the sacrifices that they're going to make, what are their beliefs, you know, and, and that's their identity. Once they've created an identity, then they need to collectively decide standards. And the standards are basically the code at which everyone will agree to live by in order to uphold that identity. Uh, So they're vaguely similar to rules and guidelines, except rules and guidelines are usually created by one person and disseminated to everyone else. Standards are collectively uh, agreed upon and say, hey, in order for us to live out our identity, then we need to all agree to do these things on a consistent basis. And then once you have your standards, the next big piece of the puzzle is getting everyone to hold each other accountable. Uh, That starts with yourself, First, you have to hold yourself accountable to those standards, and then you need to hold everyone else accountable to those standards. And as I said earlier, uh, it's not just vertically. It's not just, you know, I'm the manager, you report to me, I hold you accountable. You have to have accountability going horizontal, which means teammates hold each other accountable, which means even though I'm the manager and you're my direct report, you still hold me accountable to doing what I'm supposed to do. And I, I, I when you take the accountability the, the level and degree at which a company or an organization holds each other accountable to the standards that they've set to uphold their identity, that's what their culture is. You know, culture is not what you talk about. Uh, culture is not what you have, you know, uh, in your brochure on your website or on a big gold sign by the front desk. Culture is what you do every day. It's your beliefs but it's also your behaviors. You know, it's the experience that you create for the people uh, in your organization, your colleagues and your coworkers, but it's also the experience that you create for your customers and your clients. And that's what culture is. And, and I found that culture is best personified when the, the leadership in air quotes is not there. You know, uh, think of a basketball team. If the head coach wasn't there, how would the team behave? How would the team practice? Would they still practice with great focus and great effort? 
How would they behave in the locker room? You know, that's what will tell a, a company or an organization or a team's true culture is how they would behave when the quote unquote head coach is not there. And then one other thing that, that I love that you brought up was, you know, there are different types of intelligence out there. And, you know, IQ is the one that most people, uh, I guess, relate to or think of when they think of intelligence. And that's kind of academic smarts. That's book smarts. Uh, in many cases, especially professionally in the business world, uh, that's going to be your technical knowledge uh, of understanding uh, what you're doing. But then on the other side, uh, you have EQ which is emotional intelligence. And I'm a believer that emotional intelligence is actually the most important. Um, you know, for me, I'm not a, I'm not a dummy, but I'm not a high academic guy. You know, I don't, I don't rate off the charts on, on my SAT scores or if I took an IQ test. Um, but I have a pretty high emotional IQ. You know, I have high self-awareness. Uh, I have empathy. I understand compassion. I, I know how to read people. I'm a, I'm a fairly decent active listener. And to me, those skills are absolutely the most important because it's much easier to teach technical skills. You know, I can teach you how, you know, to screw this thing on, on the assembly line, or I can teach you how to do this spreadsheet, or I can teach, but it's much harder to teach someone how to improve their uh, emotional intelligence. And, and I actually think it's a shame because uh, those are often called soft skills. And, and I hate that name because one, those skills, when you say the word soft, that usually connotates, at least in my mind, kind of a weakness that like having and showing emotion and being in touch with your feelings is a weakness, especially for males. And that is so not true that, I mean, that is, that is absolutely absurd that emotional intelligence uh, is anything but weak. The strongest people I've ever met have a very, very high EQ. Uh, and the other reason I don't like the word soft is I think it kind of implies easy, which once again is incorrect. Those soft skills are incredibly hard uh, to develop and to sharpen and to heighten. So if I was starting a company tomorrow, this would be my preference. I would, I would put a much higher value on people with emotional intelligence than the technical knowledge or the IQ, because I know that that's something that, that could be taught. And I believe that we would have a much stronger culture if we recruited people that had that high EQ. So, um, and, and I'm starting to see a huge shift in business where people are valuing that and they want people with high emotional intelligence because they make for better leaders. They make for better teammates. And, and once they learn the technical skills, then they're, you know, they're going to be superstars. It's fascinating that you bring that up and that EQ is obviously it's, it's becoming more and more important. And as you were saying, like stuff like active listening or even the soft skills, as you were saying, it's, it's, it's really valuable stuff to know. And it's also, it's, perhaps was something 10 years ago that was overlooked as uh, you rightfully said and even by that study in that book that over the space of seven years at the start most of the companies were doing the big cvs the people who looked more impressive rather than the people who as you pointed out might actually have the skills and the leadership qualities that will actually sustain the business and get the success out of it so uh, as i mentioned the words like sustainability and earlier sustain you were saying there about the identity of these these companies or even a sports team and some people like to call it the big picture, the goal, whatever you want to call it. And I heard you saying why and what and how, and like an example would be, why do you want to be successful? Say a boss asks his employee uh, that question or 
maybe someone asks someone in the business saying, what will it take to be successful? And there's these whys and these what's. So if possible, I'd like to ask you, what do you think is the most important question to ask when trying to reach your potential as a organization or a business, if that makes sense? So like, why do you want to be successful or how do you want to be successful or what or when will be successful? What do you think in your opinion is the most important question to ask? I believe the very first thing is you have to define what success means to you because success is, it's a relative term. I mean, everybody views it differently. Uh, and I think, you know, I know from my own personal experience, my definition of success has changed or I'd like to believe matured uh, over time. You know, when I was younger in my twenties and even early thirties, um, I felt that success had most to do with you know, how much money I was making uh, or certain accolades or certain notorieties. And uh, now that I'm, I'm older, things changed when I had children, things change as I've morphed my business. Uh, that's, not, that's not how I view it anymore. So uh, before uh, you can even talk about the what or the why or the how, uh, you have to have that North Star and figure out uh, what does success look like to me and what is it that I'm trying, what is the outcome that I want and then from there, then you start to work backwards and you figure out, okay, well, why do I want this outcome? Why do I want this definition of success? Uh, how am I going to get there? What is the process that's going to be required? What sacrifices am I going to need to make uh, in order to get there? Uh, what do I need to learn uh, to, to get there? Who do I need to be around and associate with in order to get there? But it all starts with that definition of, of success. And um, if you don't have clarity on that, I think it's really challenging to get clarity on everything else. No, I'd, I'd actually completely agree with that, Alan. And it is important to identify what exactly is success and the actual process that will like basically lead you towards that or make you give yourself the best possibility to reach that goal. And as I was scrolling through your website and reading information on your book, a good example of that was reading about Kirk Hammett becoming Metallica's guitarist in uh, the 1980s. And it was written that the first thing Kirk did after getting the job of lead guitarist was to hire a guitar mm -hmm. teacher. And it's, it's no shock that after a guy has reached his dream of becoming the guitar player in one of the biggest metal bands in the world he still doesn't want to take shortcuts and he strives to become better and better but with all that said and all that's been previously discussed over the last 30 plus minutes have you ever seen an athlete or even a organization slash business that don't practice like the rest and have poor habits or standards yes still end up being hugely successful Maybe in the very short term, but never, ever over the long term. And it's never, ever sustainable, you know, especially in, in sports. I mean, talent will win. Talent trumps all. So, yes, there can be a time where you have uh, an exceptionally talented player uh, that doesn't have great work habits, that, that doesn't do all the things that we've been discussing and they'll still have some success here and there because they just have so much talent, but they're never going to be able to sustain that. I mean, not only was Kobe the best player in the game, you know, during those peak years, he also played for 20 years, which in the NBA is unheard of. I mean, the average career in the NBA is time. three and a half years and he was able to play at an all-star level for 20 years 
years. Uh, and when you look at, 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 at different times where organizations have been incredibly successful, you know, in, in the NFL, uh, the Patriots, you know, yeah, every once in a while they have a down year, but generally speaking, they're always a contender, a Duke men's basketball, uh, in, in college hoops. And then you can look at businesses, whether you're talking about a Nike or an Amazon, um, there's the consistency factor. So, uh, yes, you can have very short term limited, maybe even that one hit wonder, um, just based on talent, but it's, it's not going to be sustainable if you don't have the character, the integrity and the framework behind it to support all of that. Well, yeah, as, as that refers back to long-term success is all about the process and consistency within that. And if, if I'm to own up to one thing, it just as a human or even as a coach, my consistency could be a lot better in how I act or how I even handle people. So on that topic, I'd, li- I'd like to ask, is there anything that you've covered in your book or anything you've publicly talked about in detail that you yourself wish could implement a bit better in your own life, but just haven't been able to yet for whatever reason? Well, there's so many areas of my life that I will always continue to, to, to heighten, to raise the level of, to tighten the screws and, and refocus the lens. And that's what being in the process is. Uh, so yes, there are yeah. numerous areas in my life that I will continue to strive to improve and to develop because uh, I don't ever want to be complacent when it comes to self uh, self-growth and self-development. Uh, but what I'm very thankful for now is I have very heightened self-awareness, much more so than I did five, 10 years ago. Uh, so now um, I'm aware of the areas that are my blind spots. I'm aware of of, of the things that, that I need to continue to approve. And that awareness um, is vital because without the awareness you know, obviously you don't know what you don't know, uh, but there, yeah, there are certain things. A perfect example would be the ability to actively listen. You know, several years ago, uh, listening was, was definitely not one of my strong points. And uh, once that was brought to my attention and I had the humility to face that and decided that I was really going to work on becoming a better listener, uh, both in personal relationships and in professional relationships. And, and I've put a lot of effort and self-work into that. And I'm very proud to say that I'm a much better listener today than I was a few years ago, but I'm still not world-class. I still have room to grow and and still can improve as a listener. uh, And I will do that. Uh, So I guarantee you, if you and I connect a year from today, I will be a better listener then than I am today. Uh, And that's because I have that awareness and I know that it's something that I need to continue to work on. And, you know, most people think Stephen Curry is the best shooter in the NBA, and I tend to be one of those people, but he still practices every single day. He's still not resting on the fact that he's the best shooter. He works at it every day to continue to get better. And I'm sure that if you asked him and had him on your show, yeah, he would tell you, hey, tomorrow I'm going to try to be a better shooter than I am today. Next year, I'm going to be a better shooter than I am today. So I think uh, for any leader uh, or any person looking to raise performance, you need to have the awareness of the things that need improving, and then you need to be committed to doing those. But uh, at present, all you can do is the best you can with what you have where you are. Uh, Another perfect example, I'm a professional speaker by trade. So I, and I film almost all of my talks because I like to go back as a student of the game and watch my talks on film so that I can figure out where, you know, I can improve. And when I watch talks that I gave a year ago, I'm like, man, that I can do so much better than that. 
and I can now, but that was the best I was capable of at that time. So I don't beat myself up over it. I don't cringe when I'm watching it and go, man, that was awful. At the time, a year ago, that was the best I was capable of doing. And if I give a talk for a company tomorrow, I will do the best that I'm capable of doing tomorrow. But once again, if you and I were to meet for a drink a year from now, I hope that I could look back on the talk that I would give tomorrow and feel the same way. Go, man, that wasn't that good because that will have mean I will have that will mean I will have improved. And that's that's ultimately the goal. So as long as we're continuing to level up and, and we stay focused on these areas where we need to grow and improve, uh, to me, uh, that's not only the source of improved performance and achievement, but that's also the source of happiness and fulfillment. Yeah, well said, well put, because it's it's really important to have that awareness, whether it's of yourself or others around you, and that comes back to emo- emotional intelligence. And uh, often, especially with males, that's sometimes viewed as a bit of vulnerability. But I think, as you rightfully said, if you want to be the top of your sport or top businessman or just be successful in life, you need to be able to recognize that and realize that not everything you do is perfect and everything you do do can always be that bit better. So it was interesting for you to say that, you know, you did a lot of public speaking and you still do a lot of public speaking, but what you do six months in six months time or a year's time will probably be a bit more advanced or a bit more sharp than what you've previously done. And I think it's, it's important to take note of that. And it's, it's good to hear that you are obviously doing that. So it's um, interesting to hear with that said, that pretty much concludes the question part of the podcast, but I'd like to finish my podcast with a quick fire round. Yes. I love so it. I'll ask you a few quick fire questions. So try not to overthink us and, if any stories or anything pops into your head, just say it. Um, so question one will be, what is the strangest thing you've seen during an NBA game? Strangest thing I've seen during an NBA game. Nothing immediately pops out. I mean, I'm, I'm in awe of how amazing those players are. And, and I've been very fortunate that, you know, I, I've been able to sit courtside and, and get down really close and, I don't know that you have a huge appreciation for how big, strong, fast, coordinated, explosive, uh, and amazing these guys are when you watch them on TV. Because when you watch them on TV, you just don't get a sense for that because everyone on the court is big, strong, fast. You know, I mean, I, I remember uh, the the first time I, I saw Mano Ginobili, who played for the Spurs. Uh, I saw him in person, and I mean, he dwarfed me. I'm six foot two, 190 pounds. Like I'm a fairly decent sized guy and he's probably six, five to 15. And he was, I mean, he dwarfed me. And I know when I watched him on TV, he just kind of looked like a normal size guy. Cause in the NBA, six, five to 15 is fairly normal. And when you get up close to these guys, it's you, you almost stand in awe. So I know that that's not really the answer to what you asked because that's not very strange, uh, but that's the best I got for you. Oh, it'll do. It'll do because what you see on TV is sometimes not what you get in real life. Um, question number two, what was the biggest challenge you found while writing your book? Well, I was very fortunate that I chose to hire a co-author. So I had a teammate that provided kind of the structure and the format of the book. Uh, He was kind of the organization behind it. And then I was the content guy. So um, I provided all of the stories and all of the lessons. uh, And he was the one that kind of organized it uh, in a nice flow. Um, And, and that boy, 
he was the consummate teammate and he made the process incredibly enjoyable because I, I like the content part. You know, I don't like the research and the format and so forth. So he would say, Hey, we're doing a chapter on self-awareness. Do you have any stories on self-awareness? And then I would just tell him everything that I could think of and, 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 you know, kind of look back uh, on everything that I had done and experienced. And then he would put that into the right order. So, uh, without him, uh, I don't think the, the book writing would have been near as enjoyable of a process, but him being such a great teammate really made it terrific. And I will say from start to finish that even though the book was a lot of work, it was incredibly enjoyable uh, from start to finish, from the initial proposal now to the fact that I'm physically holding the final book in my hand and I'm, I'm promoting it uh, has, been, has been a really amazing experience. Good to hear. And what is the worst advice you see or hear being given in your world? I would say the worst advice, and I see this a lot now on social media, and it's, I don't think it's direct advice, but I think it's kind of unconsciously promoted, uh, especially on things like Instagram. Um, when people are talking about entrepreneurship, uh, they're glorifying the outcome way too much. You know, I, I see people on social media and they're taking video selfie videos of themselves uh, in their mansions and they've got their Lamborghinis and their poolside yeah. and there's, you know, um, beautiful women next to them. And they're, they're kind of showing all of the rewards of entrepreneurship. And, and that's very misleading because they're not showing, first of all, I actually believe that a good portion of the people doing that are completely fronting and they're like, they haven't achieved any of that. Those are rented cars. Those are, are rented mm -hmm. mansions. And they're just trying to get you to buy into this dream so that you give them your money and they can eventually have those things for real. Uh, because most of the entrepreneurs that I've met, even ones that are millionaires many times over, uh, that's not, <laughs> that's not how they act and that's not how they behave. But nevertheless, uh, I yeah. think this, this emphasis on the outcome, like, hey, you too can have uh, these cool cars and beautiful women and cool houses. It's like, man, if you ever want to have any chance to have those things, then you need to get back to the basics. You need to start doing the, the fundamentals every single day. And you need to have the commitment and the humility to do them for years and years and years before you can expect to see any of the, you know, any of these rewards if that's even what you're chasing. And it's, it's funny because the good portion of the people that are doing that are usually on the younger end. You know, there it's some 25 year old who wants you to believe that he made $30 million selling this thing online. I don't know if it's true or not, but if it is, that may end up being kind of that one hit wonder that we talked about before, uh, not the tried and true. I mean, you know, Amazon is a Goliath right now. One of the, the most valuable businesses and biggest businesses in the world and Jeff Bezos started that in his garage over 30 years ago, like just the concept. I mean, he was originally just trying to sell books online yeah. and now it's turned into this, this Goliath and this global phenomenon. But that's 30 years starting in a garage of doing the little things in the unseen hours every single day to get to this point. It's not something that just happened with the snap of a finger or overnight. Yeah, no fair point. So... To all Instagram uh, pretenders out there, we are on to you. So <laughs> second or third last one, what is your biggest fear? On a visceral level, uh, my biggest fear as a father is that that something you know catastrophic would happen to my children. And um, again, that's an innate fear as a protector, but it's not something that I harp on because 
that's going to be out of my control. You know, if, if, if my kids were to fall ill with a, a life-threatening sickness or to be in some type of accident, I mean, that would be as catastrophic and as horrendous as I could imagine, but those things are out of my control. And I, I try really hard not to focus on things that are outside of my own control. Uh, even for myself, you know, I mean, death is a normal fear and I don't fear it so much from a death standpoint. I always look at it in terms of if I were to die tomorrow, have I, have I done everything that I'm capable of up to this point in my life? Have I taught and modeled everything that I can to my children that if it were to all be over for me tomorrow, uh, that I would be okay with that? And, and of course, the answer to that is always going to be a little bit of a no. I mean, there's always more things I can teach my kids or stronger connection I could have with them. There's more things I could have accomplished or done or experienced um, if, if this whole thing were to end for me tomorrow. Uh, but that can be a driving force to make sure that you live every day to its fullest. Well, let's let's touch wood on both those fronts, but it's 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 good information on those. And uh, as I said, that comes back to what we previously talked about: always wanting to be that bit better, or having that vulnerability of potentially not being everything you'd want to be, but also having the actual the intelligence to realize that. And it's it's refreshing to hear that not only myself, but yourself and other people actually can admit to that. So it's good to hear. Um, next question is, what is your favorite TV show? I, I don't watch a ton of TV. There are a few shows uh, on Netflix that I, I will binge watch and enjoy uh, for downtime. Uh, I would say of all time, uh, it would be Seinfeld. I mean, certainly I was at an age where I watched all of Seinfeld, you know, live and in real time, but I'll still now, if I catch a rerun, uh, find myself laughing. And it's pretty amazing that, you know, that show was in its heyday uh, in, in the early nineties. So it's been two decades and it's still really funny and it's still, you know, really well-written and, and has great character development and, and so forth. Uh, so the longevity of that is great. Uh, right now, I know I'm really late to the party because the show was from 2018 to 2000, excuse me, 2008 to 2013, but I, I've been watching Breaking Bad uh, and really, really enjoy that show mm -hmm. as well. The writing and the cinematography and acting is, is awesome. Yeah, no, I was late to that party as well. So I'm guilty of that as well. And last question, and this is always the toughest for my guests, describe yourself in three words. Passionate, energetic, loyal. Nicely put. Uh, well, that concludes uh, the podcast, Alan. So thanks a million for coming on. And I would like to wish you all the best with the release of your book. That is, it's been released now publicly, what, in three days' time? Yes, I think it'll it is? come out January 8th. Uh, it'll be available at all major retailers. I know we've been talking about Amazon. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, but for all of my Irish friends, you can also just go to raiseyourgamebook.com uh, and you can order it from there. Uh, and then if there's anyone interested in any of the other stuff I have going on, uh, you can just go to allensteinjr.com. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram at Alan Stein Jr. Uh, and I will not be fronting uh, in front of my 2008 Camry. So don't worry, I won't be uh, showing off my car. <laughs> well, I'll make sure to leave a link for all of that attached. So um, anyone interested in buying the book or, as you said, learning about your work, and um, we'll be able to give it a look. And I'd encourage anyone to, who enjoys this podcast, give it a look because there's a lot of information I've got out of that. And I'm sure in your book that will uh, definitely be useful going forward. So Alan, Last time I say, but thank you so much for chatting today. And I wish you all the best with uh, the book and your future endeavors. Likewise, I appreciate you, Rishi. Thanks, Dick.